This episode of Ragcast Outdoors is brought to you by PK Lures, Bow Spider, and High Mountain Seasonings. Fish on! Hey, Radcast is on! Hunting, fishing, and everything in between. This is Radcast Outdoors. Here are David Merrill and Patrick Edwards. Yeah, and I'm glad you brought that up because, I mean, that's what Al Linder said, too, when we had him on the show is that, you know, if he could have one lure, I mean, he's picking a jig. And, you know, I, I learned this from my fishing mentor, Danny Curtla. He's got almost a 1,000 muskies in his career. He's fished all over the place, and he still swears by the 8-ounce marabou crappie jig that you can catch a fish just about any place at any time of year on that jig because, like you said, you can mimic just about anything you want. And we've caught you know, nice bass and trout all year round and walleyes and just about anything that swims. And jigs, jigs are just so versatile because you can work them high, you can work them low, you can work them in the middle of the water column. It just depends on what you want to do that day, you know, and you can present it how you want to. So that's really cool. And, you know, people forget to, when a fish, you know, from its early spawn, when it, when it hatches through the first couple of years, you got to remember a lot of those fish, it's imprinted in their mind. People always ask me, like, hey, big baits really do perform. They do unbelievable on lakes that are unpressured by other anglers, but is the forage of what big fish eat. So if you go out there and you're fishing in a big bait right, you're going to catch big fish. But that bigger bait also, the receptors of a big fish, the predator, it keys in quicker. So my, my worst enemy of fishing big baits is myself. Because if I work the same way, the same action, the same thing over and over again, it doesn't take long to become a Pavlov's dog and the bass go, oh, yeah, that's, that, that has the wrong signature. I'm not going to get hit again. When you start going down in sizes of baits to the micro stuff, four-inch worms, the little crappie jigs, little beetle bugs, little crankbaits, it's impressioned in those bass, big fish mine. They lived off that, you know, half their lifetime and it's always imprinted. And I did something years ago with my dad. I, I did a theory. I used to tie my own rods, fly rods, and mm-hmm. I used to do my own hand tied uh, jig or hair jigs. And my favorite one was a hair's ear nymph. I always made hair's ear nymphs. I always caught all kinds of fish with it. And I said to my dad one time, I said, man, I'm doing it on like a, you know, a small size, like 22, you know, like really small stuff. Cause I was young at the time and I could see now I got to walk around with glasses <laughs> if I'm blind as a bat. We went to the lower lake and I tied up a size one aught and two aught hairs there nymph. I made a nymph that was this big and I was stripping it and I started catching bass left and right. And I learned a long time ago, there's certain shapes, size and signature that the bass will always key in on fish as a meal. There's no negative to it. Even though the size increases, there's no negative to it. But when you start throwing big stuff hardware, the the big jointed swim baits, and there's a certain clack to it and the hook's doing it, you'll catch big fish on it, but be real careful not to condition big fish with big baits because you can ruin your bite. I People don't know here. I hope they don't listen to this podcast. I really don't, the guys <laughs> I fish against. Because there, if there's a tournament this weekend, I will go up to Cast Steak and Pyramid and I will throw big baits and I will purposely kill the bite. So the most that they could do is get lookers on the weekend 
and I still go back and fish the, the standard stuff and kick their butts. And I'll come in with a big bait on the rod. And I go, man, I stroked them on big baits. <laughs> and they're like, <laughs> we threw it all the water, all the water. And when I go out there, I put the big bait rod away and I throw out my little fairy wands and I catch all the fish and my little jigs and my little swim baits and stuff. And, and they don't, they're not the wiser. So <laughs> there is a line, there is a line where that looking through the fish's eyes and understanding what they see and feel and hear and condition that the guys, the one percenters will understand what I'm saying. Yeah. That's, that's really cool perspective. I appreciate that. Um, I just want to talk about another sponsor here real quick. High Mountain Seasonings. We all like to eat. At least I know I do. And High Mountain Seasonings makes eating that much better just because you get to put this incredible seasoning on fish. I, I was doing some just recently. We took the kids out and we caught some rainbow trout and we were using that wild trout seasoning that I love so much. Had some of that. And then a couple nights later, we had gone crappie fishing. Bill, you'd be happy about this. We went crappie fishing and we just, just absolutely hammered the 11 to 13 inch crappies. And um, I'll tell you what, man, putting the bayou bass and the Cajun cowboy and some of those seasonings on there and making fish tacos, it is so dang good. I mean, we just annihilated some crappie the other night and some walleye too. There's a level of satisfaction that is uh, garnered from going out in the field and procuring any protein. I don't care what it is, whether it's turkey, whether it's big game, whether it's fish, coming home, prepping that meal, seasoning it and cooking it and having be something better than you can get in any five-star restaurant, right? That level of skill is not that hard, right? It takes a little bit of elbow grease, a little bit of work. You got to get up early like Bill's saying, and you got to have some some practice of sharp knives and watch some. Now we have YouTube, so you can watch YouTube of how to gut skin fillet, whatever, but putting, putting that protein on the ice, bringing it home, sprinkle some high mountain seasoning on it and put it on the grill. You, the, the level of satisfaction when you plate that for your friends and family, you know, you, you won't ever get that from going to the grocery store, buying some tilapia or buying some beef and put it on the grill. Yep. And father's day weekend, we had my dad over and, the, the kids, you know, my kids were like, you know, telling Papa, you know, Papa, that was my crappie that I caught her. You know, that was my walleye. <laughs> they, they were, they were all over that, you know, they were real proud of it. And so again, High Mountain Seasoning is just such a great company based here out of Riverton, Wyoming. We're really glad they're a partner with us. Just proud to be a part of their family and they're part of the Radcast family. So give them your support. You can go to highmountainjerky.com. It's H-I-M-T-N jerky.com. Get a hold of some of that and enjoy your summer. Have a good fish fry. I mean, they've got they've got videos on their website too. And so that takes me into the next question, Bill. If you could eat any freshwater fish, what are you going to eat? Well, I'm going to come back around to high mountain seasoning. They picked up and they helped Katie Carey for yes, the Big Bass uh, Championship. So she got some product and stuff. And I tell you what, it is the bomb. She she handed some stuff out to the other anglers and kids over there in Missouri this year. Um, I was fortunate enough to get some and weird part is, you know, growing up, my dad was a chef. So I was fortunate enough where my dad could just go into the kitchen and we didn't have nothing and he could put stuff together. But when you do have the right seasonings, the flavors and stuff, it, it, it's like a chef in a bottle. It's when you, when you bite into a steak or fish or something like that, and that flavor just over overwhelmingly hits that button of like, wow, this is five star. How did you do it? And then, the real smart people like my dad, if he had high seasoning, he would never tell anybody. He would hide it in his back pocket and go, I, I just throw some stuff together. Oh my gosh, it's the best thing I've ever eaten. Um, but food, I love steak. I mean, that's the thing. But for hunting, you know, we did it when I was kids. But for fishing, 
as a fireman, I was a PC, a permanent cook for 18 years in the fire department. I cooked a lot of meals for, you know, 20, 20 plus people a day, lunch and dinner. So I had to put some meals on. One of my favorite, when I brought it in, if I caught like a big striper or a halibut and you cleaned it right and got the bloodline out of it and everything else and prepped it right, man, good, any good fish, like fish tacos, street fish tacos, homemade coleslaw, your pico de gallo, oh, yeah. a little Frank's top of it, you know, beer batter was always a, a, a win-win for any type of fish um, for the fire guys because it just takes it to another le- uh, level. But if you're looking healthy, sweet uh, street tacos, I'm telling you, striper halibut with the high seasoning stuff, you put that on there, you put it on a nice fresh tortilla, you warm it up over the stove, you put your coleslaw, you know, pico de gallo, um, a little, little mayonnaise, uh, avocado sauce on top of it, and just sit back and enjoy it and get fat off of that stuff. So halibut, striper, uh, I lived off of that a lot with my dad when we were growing up. And, and like I said, you can't beat the seasoning. It, I tell you what, it, it does take it up from a notch of just regular salt, pepper, and garlic. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. That's like the base. That's why I told my kids. I said, if you're ever cooking and you need a base seasoning, you need your salt, your pepper and some garlic powder. Like that's, that's like the base of everything. Anything beyond that, you know, you're starting to delve into different flavors. You know, the kids, they, they really like it now. You know, when they were smaller, they didn't really care for the heat so much, but now they're starting to like a little bit more of that heat. So like if we have like that Cajun cowboy or something like that, it kicks it up a little bit. They're like, man, that's really good, dad. I'm telling you what, and and here's a plug to uh, High Mountain Seasoning. There's a time with friends and family, kids and everything else, when you do, like you said, you go out, you have a great day with the family, you catch some fish, like cropping stuff, and it's a sweet fish, but you come back and you have your fish fries. You're at the campsite, you're at your house, you do this, and you go from the hook to the clean, to the catch, to, to feeding. Your kids, I kid you not, what's being imprinted in their minds is with High Mountain Seasoning and, and cooking food the right way and giving it that that kick is you're going to have a legacy because those kids, when they get older, they're going to have kids and you're going to go fishing and they're going to go, Oh, what? Oh, you should have had the fish tacos. My dad made, and he had this seasoning. Well, Oh, it's high mountain. Guess what? I have some here. And they're going to be able to bring back their experience that you're showing your kids now, 25 years from now and giving it to their kids and going, Oh my gosh. So it's amazing fishing brings us together as a family, but cooking also and the flavors and the trans, trans, uh, traditions in that will last a lifetime. So a company like that that's jumping in for the outdoors with High Mountain, man, you got to give them kudos. Yeah, and you know, to your point, supported Katie. You know, all we had to do is just say, hey, this is what's going on. They're like, yeah, we'd love to support something like that because they believe in that, right? That that's just the kind right. of people they are. And and you're right. Like some of my best memories growing up cooking walleye, cooking perch, different things with my dad, and then having a big family meal, you know, where you get the entire family, like around the table, you might have two tables because all the kids, but you get everybody there and you enjoy it together. There's nothing better than that. Same with David, you know, he does that with the elk. I mean, there's just something about sharing that and then telling the story of catching the fish. Because like my daughter, she uses one of my favorite all-time baits, which is like a number eight X wrap. Like that thing catches just about everything. It's such a good bait. And so she was telling Papa about, you know, working that thing and catching crappie and then catching a smallmouth and then catching a walleye. You know, it's like she was so proud that she was doing that and, you know, she got to help fillet it. And so she was talking about, you know, filleting the fish. And so that that's the kind of stuff that just makes what we're talking about and what we're doing so special. 
So talking about techniques and bass behavior, what are some things to think about seasonally to help people catch more bass? Uh, you know what? <clears throat> I, I've, I've written stories. I've sat down and talked in, in, in lengths with like Linder and, and Roland and a bunch of guys and fishing on how I break things down. When it comes down to your, you know, what you're going after first, first of all, you got to figure out your species that you want to target. Then you got to look at the water. So I'm always looking at the entire water column, top, middle, bottom. doesn't matter if I'm fishing for lake trout, bass, crappie, bluegill, catfish. I'm trying to find the body of water I'm going to do. And I go to simplistic. It's basically how I grew up in the fire department when we did brush fire fighting. I'm always outside looking at the mountains and looking at chimneys, draws. Which way does that fire go up? Where's a position that would kill us in a fire situation, right? And if you're smart enough and understand that that's a draw and that's a chimney and that's a spur and that's a ridge line and that's a flat. And this is where it clicked in fishing. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, that's everything that's under a water line. And then when you look at growing up hunting, you're always looking at where's the draw? Where do they feed at? Where's their sleeping zones? How's their ridge line? Where do they sit on the backside of the wind blown eddy? You know, the smell like there's all everything kind of morphed into one into fishing. So it's, it's all relatable. I could talk to you guys about hunting and come up with stuff where you're going, holy crap, we didn't even think about it that way and into fishing. But when it comes down to it, you want to be able to use a lure or look at a, a body of water simplistically. Every bit of the water has potential to catch a fish. Any shoreline bank, anything, anything that you could add to the contour, the structure of that body of water is a added point value. It increases. So if you have a plain bank, it's one. You could always catch fish there. If you walk down to a point, <clears throat> that's two. That's a higher potential because you have a, a place where something's going to hit, run up a, a ridge line, <clears throat> come down, feed, um, everything else. If that point goes into a creek channel, it's a three. So everybody that asks me is like, hey, what's the easiest? Or what do you do? Look at structure and cover elements. <clears throat> Standard. What's under the water that's consistent? And then I go and I just look at the bait fish. What are they eating? What are they going to chew on today? Did they plant trout? Or are they chasing trout? I'm going to put something that's matching the hatch. Is there a mayfly? I'm going to do that. If you get lost in fishing, go back to the basics. Pick up a spinning rod with a small hair jig. You can fit and go and find the best looking places along the body of water from a golf club uh, pond to a little river, anywhere where you go. Oh, that's fishy. That's where the fish would stay. That's where they're going to eat. You start fishing and it, it all really all comes down to time on the water. Just like you hunting, you become better when you become one of the land, you become part of it and you can feel it. You can feel the pressure change, the wind change. You're going, Oh, get red time the deer are going to get up they're going to start moving in about 20 minutes the low light the golden hour fish everything does the same thing and a, a, a big deer honestly when you look at it you'd be a really really big trophy deer you could put that same pattern if you put water over that entire place that you're hunting big fish would exactly, almost exactly do the same thing come up to the same apple tree the same time in the evening to get it, but know that they can escape quick because there's an escape route on the back side of it. It's all the same. Those, those big game, any of them, turkeys, you know, anything, they they take and inhabit 90% of the game inhabits 10% of the, the cover, right? I think those fish yeah. are going to be the same way. You got 90% of the bottle of water, but 10% of it is going to hold the majority of the fish. 
And it's going to be around right. those structures and those key features that they like. Yeah, it's awesome. So going back to that, like, you know, I think about my home body of water and I, I'm like visualizing everything as you say it. And I'm like, well, that's why we catch fish at that spot. And that's why we catch fish at that spot. Right. But when you're, when you're evaluating a body of water, you, like you said, you're kind of giving it like a scoring system. I've heard Al Linder kind of talk about that too. You know, if he's evaluating a brand new body of water, some of the things he looks at, talk about how the seasons affect that too, especially with bass, because you know, like let's say it's a pond you know and there's not a lot of structure what are some considerations that a person should have when pursuing bass based on the seasons right so like i said if if anybody ever really sat down and read read the book that jones and i wrote way back you know in 2005 come up with a lot of that so anything stationary hard is your structure cover elements cover elements under the water line can be seasonal so when i look at a body of water i got to look at the time of year is that time of year going to grow grass? Is it going to grow coontail, tulies, lily pads? Um, is that going to be another point value or a position where those bigger fish will stay and it's, it's an easier place to target? So when I look our local lake here, Lower Lake Castake, it's like you said, it's a bowl. It's pretty much nothing. It, it goes out from the bank. It does like a 45-degree shot down from like 12 foot down to 30 foot, and it's just kind of just barren. And Less is when you look at something like that, less is more. And here's the I'm going to tell you a secret what I do on this lake, depending on how the sun rises and sets, you got a plane of ecliptic. So the sun comes through the, the air, the, the sky at a certain thing. Summertime, it's more uh, ahead above us. Wintertime, you have a lower angle, depending on the plane of the axis of the earth and the sun. Consistently, every day, because things change like 15 minutes, tidal water, everything, everything changes every day. But guess what stays the same? It's shadows. Okay. So if you have a clear three or four days when that sun comes up, it's going to create shadows and those shadows can be as stupid as a tree on a mountain, a mile and a half away, but the shadow of the tree cuts across that bowl, that water, that shadow is as hard as the shoreline. Bait fish will position themselves in a shadow, even in a hundred foot of water and the bass will eat in open water. But if that shadow comes up to anything and crosses point of hard and cover harder soft structure which is like a dock um there's a plain bank with the dock but you see a shadow coming up to that because of the way the sun's hitting it at a certain time your percentages are going to increase exponentially like it, it is mind-boggling that it's like a tidal water like you fish high tides low tides shadows are the same thing in every body of water i would say if people pay attention to shadows it is so magnificent <laughs> where it will take you in a whole different world and learn how to sundial yourself, which if you stand there and you guys are about six, two, six, six foot or so, depending on the sun angle, you can sit there in a boat on shore or anywhere else. And you can see the length of your shadow on the ground and where it's positioned. So even though the whole body of this bowl is you know, it's all lit up with the sun. If you find a place where it goes from 12 foot to 16 or 18 foot, there's a drop. You could pretty much figure out how that shadow is working it visually in your mind underwater just from sundown yourself. And you could put yourself in a position to fish the shadow edge in 18 foot of water and catch more fish than everybody out on the water because you understand certain elements move, keeping, you know, hunting, fishing, everything. There's other things that move and push bass around than just bait fish. So, like I said, I'm a freak. I would look at you. I'd say, hey, show me your body of water, and I'll start showing you stuff that I see that you're going to go, 
I never thought of that. Okay, that's <laughs> totally different. And it, and it comes down to taking notes. A kid on the shoreline, what I did at Cass State, take a piece of paper, take a lure that drops about a foot a second, and create your own graph, create your own depth chart. That's what I did when I grew up. We didn't have electronic. We didn't have anything. I'd throw a, a jig out, and I'd count it one, two, whatever, and that was my rate of fall. And then on those lures, I would sit there, and if I counted like five seconds and it went 10 feet deep, swim baits, I'd pull them out, and I'd put a 10, I'd draw on the back of the tail. And I knew that precision. I knew what every bait would work at what depth, at what depth on a count drop. So precisionly, I could see underwater everything my bait's doing. And when I did get hit, I could tell you where in the water column they hit it, how they hit it, the position of they hit it when I was a kid. And that's the things that it's easy to say, hey, what's the easy thing to go out there? No, it's going to be some work, time on the water, take a lot of notes, and draw a map. Draw your own map. And when you do that, not only do you become the student, but you're going to turn back around. And when we do a podcast on Rad, Radcast Radio five years from now, you get to maybe be the teacher. Mm-hmm. You know, that's the difference. It's always, always try to prepare yourself to be a teacher, to teach somebody, but get the knowledge behind you in your back pocket of really what happens, like what is really going on. So it, it was a loaded question, but yeah, there's, <laughs> man, this is, this is all cool. Yeah. I try to come up with loaded questions. It's more fun that way, but uh, here's, here's one that I, I like to ask and, you know, I'd love your feedback on it is what are some of the things that most anglers do wrong when they're looking for bass? Like what's the number one thing that you're like, you know, don't do that, you know, do something else. Like what's the number one thing that you see is like, whoops, that's, that's probably something you shouldn't be doing. I, I think Dave brought it up uh, earlier in the, in the podcast when he says there's a point in time where you just, you just want to do it competitively or repetitively so much time that you're finally going to catch something. You know, like, hey, I'm going to go elk hunting. I'm just going to keep doing it. And if I do 100 stocks, I'm finally going to get one. I think what most people forget, all anglers, they take the time on the water to the thing where I'm just going to go out there and just keep throwing. And I'm going to eventually catch a fish. I would tell every angler from this point on, when you go out there, you are not allowed to make one cast. Don't throw. You cannot throw your rod at all. You have to sit there and you got to go through five or six elements in your mind. Am I in the right place? Do I have a right lure to create the illusion of realism of the, what that fish is targeting? If I make this cast, it's like chess moves. You, you make one move, you better be thinking eight steps ahead. If I make this cast, is my lure going to get stuck or can I bring it through that pile of tree or rocks? If I do get hit, can I hook the fish and get it in? The biggest thing is for everybody, slow down and make one cast. Remember I said the story, it's going to come full circle, about the trap and skeet. And my buddy George goes, how many tournaments are you going to shoot? And when I finally said 800, he goes, now you're on to something. Everything has to have a perfect reason why before you do it. If anglers start doing that and just don't go down and put their bucket down and just start fishing and sit there and look at the water, look to see if one side has more shadow, see if there's bird activity with blue herrings and egrets or looms or cormorants in a pocket. Are there coots over there? Is there brush line? Is there grass? The time here, you have to sit there and go, you have to check off marks and go, okay, now where is the best place to go? You go to that location and go, now you sit there and go, what is my only one cast? If I can only make one cast and fish it right, this one cast, is it going to be the right one? Guess what? Your confidence level, when you do that to a person, and they, they don't know, this is what I do all the time, 
my confidence is I know I'm going to get bit because I am the bait fish. I am in the right place at the right time to get killed. Here's all the thing. It's one guy. I have so much confidence to the landing of my lure to the, my rod tip with this one thing that the confidence blows, blows people's minds that that does, that does some awesome stuff. But if I don't get bit on that one cast, I still have 800 tournaments to go. That one disappears. I recalculate what happened. I turn it back around. I make one more ca- one cast, and I start over. And that I'm telling you, if people could wrap their minds around that, there's going to be a whole lot of fish being caught, and they're going to be able to see it. But they're going to be able to go back and show their kids and say, "Dad, why are you throwing that number six rapala? Why, why, why are you throwing right there?" Well. There's a break line and it goes from eight foot up to four and a half foot. And there's a rock right there. And there's a stick I put there when I was a kid. So it has a little cover and stuff like that. And if you throw it at this angle, you're going to bring it right up to it. Right when you feel your line getting tight, that means your Rapala is get right by that wood stick. I want you to stop it there. Let it hang. I want you to do a couple twitches because that's what the bait's going to do. It's going to flare. And then just hold on. And when that fish hits it, you're not going to really pull in real quick. You're going to load the rod because you want the fish to turn around from that tree and come out. And it's going to go out this way, out to deep water, and then you're going to be able to come in. You can pay, visually paint every step of the picture, and when you're able to do that, you're in the you're in the BBZ world. I mean, it's it's, some, <laughs> it's, it's a whole different Oprah. So yeah, that's awesome. You guys are like, oh, this guy is crazy. No, I, I I totally get what you're saying. Like, it makes a lot of sense. Actually, it's I mean, because I mean, you have to think about it differently. There's a lot of guys that go out there and fish, but not a lot of them that actually are successful. And it's because they're not paying attention. I'll give you a good good example. A great guy, Mike Jones and George Kramer. George Kramer was a local rider down here for one bass for years. You know, tournament angler, um, covered bass masters, the whole thing. I wrote the book with uh, Jones, and he was uh, he was proofing the book and stuff. And I had a part in it called CSI. And he goes, what's, CSI? What's CSI? And I go, I CSI my plastic bait. We went out and did a photo shoot. I end up catching a 10 pounder on film with George at a lake. I don't usually fish the front color of cover of a magazine and stuff, but I was throwing old style, like optimum swim baits, all plastic. And I was so crazy. If I threw a new one out and I knew there was a rock out there, 25 feet and I'm in a bad position where the sun is maybe behind my back or at an angle. And I had to throw 90 degrees to this rock. What I throw out, I count down as I'm bringing it in. Here's your rock. Your line would come up over the top of the rock, so your bait would be here as you're bringing it in through the water column as a pendulum, and your line would start getting tight. You could feel it getting tight on the rod, and you go, oh, oh. so you're bringing, you're using that as like a, a tuning fork. You're feeling the bait coming into that rock. You go, oh, oh, And then you get close to the rock, and you do a directional change. Or right before the directional change, you get thump. Boom. And you reel set. You reel down, 25-pound string, big reel, load the rod, you have a fish on for a second, boom, pops off, and you go, oh, crap, I lost it. Well, people would just bring it back in and throw out again, right? I bring it in, I take a look at that bait, and I start looking at the plastic, and I'm like going, okay, this is how it was going through the water cone. It was pendulum into this rock. I get hit. I set the hook. I have the fish on. What do I see on this bait? How did that fish hit the bait? What position was that fish at 25 feet, 40 feet away from me, 25 feet down? I look at it. And on the bait, it's all rubber. They're like the optimums. They have a line tie. And on the front part of the line tie, the plastic is ripped this way. Because bass have gristle, right? Mm-hmm. It's ripped this way. How did that happen? The bass was facing away from me. He was on the rock looking out. The bait fish came up. He ate it. 
I pulled real hard. The line came out of his mouth, wrapped over his head. When I pulled, because his lips were right at the, the knot for the jig head, it pulled the bait backwards out of its mouth. So I could actually tell you what angle that friggin' fish hit at 25 feet deep, 40 feet away from me, by CSI, looking at the bait marks, the half moon marks. If you had a half moon mark and you had bit and you came in and you saw this, the dome, first of all, is my hook in the right place? No, because if they're going to hit at this angle, I have to put a trailer hook back here because when they hit the bait and turn it sideways, when I pull it, when I pull it this way, now the treble hook's going to come out and get them in the side of the lip. So I know like, oh, I got to reposition my angle. My next cast, if this bass right now is faced this way, they're going to, that's a pattern now. In that depth, in that cover, this is the way the fish are positioned. This is how they want to hit it. How do I adjust my bait to get the best hookup ratio? How do I position the bait to get the best hookup where it's not being pulled out of their mouth this way? It's being pulled sideways or straight forward. So being able to calculate that off in one cast takes you to a whole new level where you're like, these fish got nothing on me. <laughs> like, like, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to jack them up. And then when you do miss them, you ask why, what did you do wrong? Lure placement, mechanics, body position. You know, do you guys play baseball? I, you know? I play softball. Yeah. Yeah. So in softball, is that not a follow through? Do you set up softball like you do trap and skeet? When you set up for skeet, you always make sure you start off in position where you're going to follow through with your, your follow through. And then you coil back into your, your shot. So that way you follow through and you don't hiccup. You don't stop. You don't, you don't tighten up the spring. Baseball, you always want to look for your follow through and then come back and set. So you got a perfect follow through. In bass fishing, you want to hear a big mistake on big baits and fishermen. Their body mechanics are completely wrong. If they're sitting there, and they're using a right-hand reel, and their body position is where they have to pull to the left, the rock, that side. You're pulling the reel handle out of your cranking reel. So mechanically, you opened up yourself, your core. That means you have to close your core down to get back to the reel, which means you loosen your line. You don't have any pounds of per square inch on that, that hook. So your baseball stance in fishing is reversed. You always got to look on how do you do a reel a reel set where you could reel and bring the reel into your hand as you're setting for every reel, you know, you're looking at 24 to 38 inches, depending on your gear ratio, what type of line, how much stretch, what size rod, how does it bow up, get that point started. And you got to pull an eighth of an inch to get that hook because it's swallowed by a monster fish. You got to pull it to the barb. Just getting the point is one thing. You got to get it past the barb to lock them in. So just mechanics of body position for most anglers, they're losing half. Oh, I got hit, but I lose the fish. You're not setting up for the hook set. So there's so there's so much into fishing, like so many different layers. But um, that that's one of the biggest things is think your one cast approach. But when you get hit, always be set up for the hook set, and then you'll always have the opportunity of saying, "I got this one." Instead, of, "Oh, I got hit and I lost this one." <laughs> you know, you're like, "Yeah, no, it makes total sense." <laughs> no, I'm 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 still stuck back on the analogy of watching watching the fire column and the smoke for big game and then going, wait a second, that's going to work underwater the same way. Water and smoke are going to travel the, right? I mean, just so if I wanted to go catch a 10 pound bass, a large mouth somewhere, what state should I focus on? I've never caught one, right? Where, where would you send me to go catch one? I'll tell you the truth. I bet you, except for a few, I did this report like 25 years ago with Jones. I bet you pretty much every state in the U S has potential for a 10. And the reason, and this is how you break it down. How long has the lake been there? One. So you have to have time where everything's in, it's in the upswing. 
it's got good balance, good, got good bait fish, everything. The, the ecosystem's prime. Two, do they have largemouth? Now, I will say you want a 10-pound largemouth, but a six-pound smallmouth is still, like, there. And, and everybody has always asked me about a 10-pound fish. Like, you know, you have to have a 10-pounder to have a trophy. I'll throw this out there. Bullcrap. Bullcrap. Your biggest fish, your biggest fish, if you caught a four-pounder, your next biggest fish is a five-pounder, you know? So this opens it up. That terminology is going to open up fishing to everybody across the U.S. Because three-quarters of the country is going to say, we don't have fish over 10 pounds, so we'll never be able to accomplish that. Well, I know half the guys who say, say they're big bait fishermen here in California will go to your state and they will never catch a smallmouth over five. So it's, that's all relative. But look at the body of water. Look at the, the size, the fish, the predator. If there is largemouth and smallmouth there, do they have trout? Do they have salmon? Do they have some type of, we call them vitamin T, you know, vitamin trout back in the day. <laughs> do they have a forage there that they plant that creates Pavlog's dog? So most of the lakes, I bet you even Wyoming, when the water temperature gets down to the 70s or something like that, they start doing trout plants. Well, when they do trout plants, and if there's bass in that lake or big walleye, it's Pavlo- it takes about a month or so of consistent trout plants every two weeks, you know, or every three weeks. There's consistency. It takes about a month or two for those big fish to go. Pavlog's dog, they will be at the launch ramp when that bell starts dinging, coming down with the trout. Seen it for years. So... Look for those elements. Those are the key things. The right size fish, are they in the lake? Do they have the right forage? And you got to be there at the right time. When they plant trout, it's got to be within probably the first week where you have the best shot of catching a monster fish. Tell me right now, guys, Wyoming, how many lakes have you gone to? And everybody has the story. Oh, I take my kids over to this trout lake. I've fished it for years, but it really sucks because you catch these trout and all of a sudden a big bass will come up and eat the trout off your line. And no one picks up a swim bait and fishes for bass in the lake because they're all keyed in on it's just a trout lake. Yeah. You know how many lakes are like that throughout the U.S.? Hundreds of thousands. You hear it over and over again. And you hear that the best ones, the old timers, they're sitting there, yeah, those big bass, every time I try to get a trout, you know, they, they rip them <laughs> off my line. I would be researching every lake in my local area going, oh my gosh, top secret place. I'm going to go there when the weather changes, when we get kind of like a drop, you know, good moon phase, they plant trout. And I'd be out there sneaking around, not telling anybody. And I would be throwing the biggest bait possible and watch, watch your life change when you see stuff that you've been fishing forever. And you change a couple little elements and you go, oh my gosh. Hey, hey, Patrick, you know, you know that pond we've been fishing for 25 years since we've been a kid and they plant trout every year. It's like, you know, we never throw on swim baits. They have bass in there. Uh, I just caught a seven pound smallie and a nine and a half, 10 pound large now. Yeah. You can't tell anybody I'm going to kill you. (laughs) It's there. So there's, there's bodies of water in your area in Wyoming. There's bodies there that have monster walleyes that you over 10 pounds. Yep. They probably plant trout in those lakes too. Yes, they do. You ever throw swim baits for walleyes? You know, we talked about that. What was it a few right. months ago? And I haven't done it yet. I got to do it. <laughs> because it's so far out of some people's realms. Mm-hmm. You know, how many other lakes there have big smallmouth, big smallmouth and largemouth that trout are planted that nobody, they fish the lake just for a trout, you know, to get meat, trout. How many of those up there? I bet you there's quite a few. Yeah, there's a few for sure. 
And, you know, I think I mentioned to you the last time we were talking, it was like, you know, you catch like a, a 19 inch walleye that's got like a 10 inch stalker rainbow in his stomach. Well, I mean, they're keyed in on that big bait, right? And I was telling David on our previous podcast, my son, he noticed that there were, you know, little rainbow trout dimpling by the boat ramp because they had just planted them. He dropped a PK spoon down and hooked into about an 11 pound lake trout down on Flaming Gorge, you know, and that thing was just like peeling off the line. He was having so much fun because those predators are in there. They're having a feast. Yeah, Flaming Gorge. See, so you got the big brown trout, Flaming Gorge. They have big brown trout, big lake trout, and big smallmouth. Okay. Swim bait capital of the world. Seriously. I mean, they, that's, that's, the, that's the ingredients of beyond epic days. And if they have lake trout there, you know, start leadlining and downriggering and get down there in deep water and start throwing eight to 12 inch swim baits. You're going to be, that's what they're eating all the time. And you guys have never even got to that signature of size forming. And the big thing on that clear water and, and big baits, they have a certain drawing power. And here's some voodoo stuff. Like when you start look, when I talk about shadows and everything else, when I look through the eyes of a predator, we're predators, right? Mm-hmm. We're, we're, we're alpha. If you're sitting outside or you guys duck hunt, I know you guys have to duck hunt because you're from Wyoming. I grew up duck hunting and you sit there in the blind early in the morning and you're sitting there drinking your coffee and you're sitting there and dad and you are throwing jokes and the sun's coming up and you see a shadow go across the water in front of you. As a predator, you go, oh, and you think, where's the sun's coming up? You turn, you look up and you start tracking the duck, right? Mm-hmm. You know, bass do, bass do the same thing. You throw a swim bait on the surface and it's clear water, <clears throat> the bigger the bait, the bigger the shadow. Which means if you're sitting outside, do you really pay attention to Tweety Bird shadows? No. Plane comes by, a hawk, a raven that throws a big enough shadow that catches your attention, you instantaneously, as a predator, will stop, look, you'll, you'll spot your target, and in your mind, you guys are doing a lead on it already. Because that's what we do. Bass do the same thing. So if you understand where the sun's at, and you throw a big enough bait to create the right shadow, I could fish a 12 inch swim bait for a lake trout in zero, to- zero part of the water, the top and say it's 60 foot deep. If you have a dark black swim bait that creates the best shadow, you know, at 60 foot, you're going to have a shadow like this going across the bottom. Fish will be eating the shadows. I've seen this for years because the, the rods and cones of light, when the shadow hits the bottom, it comes back and it creates rods and cones and it looks like a, a fish swimming. And you watch fish go over and actually eat the dirt and they'll sit there and look and then they go, Oh, I just got duped. And they'll look up and you watch the fish come up to your bait to eat it. Huh. So that, that's voodoo. That is voodoo. Bill. <laughs> so understanding that, that if you have a tree in 12 foot of water, 15 foot of water and you, the sun's right and you do your right angle, you could fish a top water bait on the surface Mid-depth, you can cross the shadow across the limbs of the tree 10, 15 feet down, and then down below at the base of the tree, when it comes out of the shadow, you'll have the bait swimming across the bottom. So I could fish top, middle, bottom with one cast, multiple strike zones in the water column to position fish. If you're really voodoo and smart, you fish with the sun in your face. Because when you throw that buzz bait, the top water bait, and it hits the bank, right? And you're going to fish like a gut. Mm-hmm. When that bait starts swimming out, the shadow triangulating coming down, the shadow will be in front of your lure. That means if there's a fish undercover on a hat, on a rock or a bush, it's looking at the bottom, 20 feet deep. It sees the shadow, 
it'll come out, strike the shadow or look at it, stop, look up, and by the time he looks up, your bait is coming in their strike zone. One cast concept. You'll watch the fish come up, boom, you catch it. If it's reversed, the sun's at your back, you have to throw multiple times. Because by the time the shadow comes and pulls fish out in deep water, you're already in at the boat. Fish will turn back around, go back in its haunches. You throw it again, comes out, goes back in. The third time the fish is sitting out there, he goes, I just saw it twice. Something's swimming by. What the heck is it? Now he comes out in the open. He sees your bait fly, hit the water. And sometimes you go, wow, I threw right in that fish's mouth because if I could hit the water, it was already open. Like the mouth was open. Oh. You already... So, so understanding shadows and how to position during the day and the depth, there's 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 so much in the shadow fishing that is like voodoo, but I've seen it and I've done it so many times through the years. It will it will make you a better everything. And even understanding shadows hunting, trust me, you go out dove hunting and you're sitting there and you got the sun to your back. And all of a sudden, you see a shadow of a dove flying across the, because you're keyed in now. You're looking for the M&Ms, and you go, oh, hold on, Dad, here comes one right now. You know, they, t- they give themselves away before they get there. Hunting. Oh, I was going to mention that, that, Bill, is, you know, over the last, this will be my 19th season. I was 10-0 and 0 the first 10 years and 7-7, seven and seven, right? Um, what changed? I've taken two weeks and gone hunting every year. I've gone hunting similar places, right? What's changed is A, the work ethic, and B, just observing nature, observing the elk, learning their patterns and where I'm going to be able to intercept them and where I'm not. And when it's time to just back out and, you know, not giving up is is another big key is, okay, so you, you didn't hook him that time, right? That fish that came right at that hat and you pulled the lure out of his mouth, but you learned where he was susceptible instead of just going, oh, yeah. I lost one. Okay, here's what I need yeah. to reposition, reposition my hook or reposition the boat, and that next cast, you've got him. Like yeah, antelope hunting, you, we use the sun. It. Yeah, reposition. Like I've used the sun. Antelope can see at 600 yards, right? We've killed them several times under 100 yards in inch-tall sagebrush by putting the sun right at our back and walking straight at them, and they cannot, right at sunset, they cannot see you. Yeah, your your golden hour, the long shadows, everything blends in together. Especially the lower you get to the horizon. Oh yeah, it, yeah. This is, and that's the fun part. If people make it fun and really start breaking things down, when people ask me, hey, "Man, you know a lot, Bill." Every time I go out there, when you open up your mind, you see something else. Go, ah, you know, I I know I'm close on this, but there's still key elements that I'm missing. I just did a video just the other day fishing the uh, four inch shadow cast eight. I got on a blue herring bite. And I'm telling you, I pull up and I'm just watching this bird going down the bank and the bird's sitting on the dirt and it turns his head to the side because it's kind of stained water and it's looking down the edge of the dirt and the water. It's looking in a strike zone two inches off the bank and two inches deep. And I'm like, oh man, that blue herring is fishing the funnel, the edge, just like I need to fish. And on film, I go, I want to fish. I threw in two inches of water. I said, it's the dirt pattern pattern. I throw the, the swim bait in two inches of water or on the dirt. I bring it in two inches of water and I'm reeling down that edge. So that strike zone for the blue herring is the exact same strike zone for the striper and the bass. People get in a boat, they just chunk and line. They throw to the bank and bring out. If they have a fish follow them out, just like you said, the repositioning. Oh, shoot, I just had a 10-pounder follow me out. You know what, what I see everybody do? They keep throwing to the bank. 
you know how many tournaments I've won where I've told my partner, like Troy Linder or something, I'm like, hey, you see that guy on the pint? They're throwing big baits. Watch them, watch them, watch them. And you see them throw one time and they bring out and they go, you see them crouch down and they got a follower. And then all of a sudden they're like, oh, and they, they throw two or three more times. And I go, Troy, if they leave, we're going over. We're going to put our boat in four inches of water on the inside of the cut. We're going to throw where their boat's at. We're going to get the big fish to the tournament. Okay. <laughs> they take off, go over. The fish were pulled out from where they really wanted to hit. The boat itself is a shadow. Those big fish will come into the back end of their boat and kind of sit there and just chill out because where they want to eat is getting hammered by a big bait. The boat leaves, creates turbulence. I come in, I sneak, sneak in, I throw out where the boat is. I bring a bait and pendulum it back into the strike zone. So now I take that follower that they had. It's following my bait, but I'm creating the illusion of realism. And now that bass goes, that's the bait I followed out. I'm going to push it back up to where I eat. And I come in like four inches of water, 10 feet in front of the boat, stick an eight pounder. We catch big fish in the tournament. We leave. And then we don't. We, say, we tell somebody, oh, yeah, we caught it on a drop shot. <laughs> and then we tell the guy that we beat that we took all his money like oh yeah we saw you miss that fish we went over and caught your fish yeah. that, that hurts yeah that yeah. hurts them, so <laughs> no that's awesome i you've definitely taught me something with that because i i hadn't really thought about the shadows as much in in that regard and that's like oh well that makes a lot of sense so thank you for that that that's been awesome i'll, I'll show you a video i'll send you a video of me fishing human shadows for crappie we, we trained the, uh, we had a class for the women of the outdoors on a pond. That's a bowl. And I stood on the bank for 20 minutes like this at low light to create a shadow. And I just stood there and every crappie in that area came over and positioned in the shadow. And I caught 50 crappie in a row with a crappie jig and a bobber in my shadow. I created my own soft structure. That's really cool. Makes you wonder. Well, it's, it, it's like you said, you've, you've been observing the fish and you figured out, you know, what are they keying in on and why are they keying in on it? And that's, that's really what separates the men from the boys in the sport, right? And, you know, the, the best anglers from those who are just out there, you know, and, and it does make a difference. I did want to talk to David, you know, you being a bow hunter, Bill, you know, David's got a really cool product and it's, it's called the bow spider. And he, he's been traveling around to 3d shoots and different archery challenges around the country over the last few months. And he's about to head out tomorrow morning. Um, but David, just tell, tell Bill a little bit about the bow spider. Well, it's a universal bow packing and storage system. It works with any bow and any uh, pack on the market, but it does so much more to work in your truck on the headrest or on your wall or up your tree stand on your hip belt or your hip. And then on the top of your pack, you know, so hands-free riding a horse, e-bike, mountain bike, four-wheeler, but safe, secure storage, grab your bow and go anywhere. We just had the opportunity to sponsor a 3D course at the Northwest Mountain Challenge, and we set up a course called Everest by Bow Spider, and it was a 4.7 miles, 2,000 feet elevation, and it was definitely a course that if you didn't have a Bow Spider, you were going to want one. And if you had one, <laughs> you weren't going to want to forget it because it was a, well, we had a tournament on that same course and some of the tournament archers hate me because I spent the time, you know, three, four days setting the whole course, setting the shots, setting the animal in nature where I thought they'd be standing on this razorback ridge at 60 yards and you're shooting at a 50, 60 degree uphill angle, right? And these tournament archers with their 30 inch stabilizers and their 38 inch axle axle bows are hating me. But every hunter that came off those courses said absolute best course of their life. You know, they, the most realistic, you come around a corner, here's a bedded doll ram in the scree rocks at 66 yards. You can't get closer because boom, you're out in the open, your cover's gone. 
it's time to make the shot or go home. So we've had a lot of fun doing that. We're going to do some more. We have new products coming, but yeah, we're going to be at a couple more tax total archery challenge. Just have a booth set up showing people what the product's all about. See, that's all. So years ago when I shot archery, I'll tell you a couple of stories. You, you're going to laugh. My uncle was phenomenal. He built longbow. He's a longbow shooter. Shot, showed me how to shoot a long time ago. And I was one of the kids that I'm right-handed technically. And I kept missing the target. He was so pissed until he found out I'm left-eye dominant. So I'm a left-hand bow shooter, but I'm right-hand pistol. And once I figured that out, that was part one. It's like, okay, cool. Years go by, I get in the fire department. A good buddy of mine, Mike, hey, let's go shoot these 3Ds. So we got into shooting 3Ds. And we go shoot this 3D course. Same thing. Starts like 8 in the morning, ends at 5 at night. It's like like a 10-mile walk. And at the time, we just went to Carbon Arrows. So they're super expensive. We got away from all the old stuff, the overdraw with the release. I got all the bells and whistles. A lot of guys are out there with longbows. But when they did the 3D target, they also put a metal plate around your kill zone. So if you didn't hit in one of the kill zone spots, you just hear this ding, and there goes like a $25, $30 arrow. And all day long, you just found, there must have been $100,000 of broken arrows. And we <laughs> ding, just walked around. Ding. And there's hundreds and hundreds of shooters. So I was in one of the back courses. And you're going to love this. So we go through, and I'm sitting there, and my buddy's going, Bill, man, you're you're right there, man. You're top five. You know, if you get this last shot, man, I, I think you're going to be up. We go, we're, we're, we're all in this line, and they put this antelope. It's all flat, and you couldn't use your range finder at this time for this part. So it was all instinct and everything else. And it was a miniature antelope. Like, the guy messed with everybody. And there's a hundred guys in front of me, literally. And the guys went over and you, you see them draw and let go. And they're either four feet below it or 10 feet above it. No one hit it. The old timer that was in front of me shooting the longbow, he walks up, he helped put the grange together. So this guy kind of knew. So he had the advantage. He pulled back his longbow. He sticks this sucker. I'm 50 feet, you know, 50 guys behind him. He goes up, pulls his thing. Everybody misses. I come up. My buddy goes, Bill, you know, if you hit this thing, he goes, I think you're going to be in third. I'm like, okay. I draw back and I center punch the 10 ring. And everybody's like, holy cow, how did you pull that off? So I didn't go straight to the, the animal. I did all these walking around and high five and I did this stuff. And I got my arrow, I took off. And I took third and the old timer came over and he goes, okay, how did you figure out the yardage? And I laughed at him and I said, I had a hundred people in front of me. I said, every time somebody went up to hit their, their arrows, I counted their steps. <laughs> I said, you're the only one that, that hit the thing dead on. I knew it was 44 yards. Because his drawback, the tip of his arrow on longbow, he just pointed at the, the, the top of the arrow, and it was 40 yards strut. That was his, his mark on. He laughed at me, and we were going to go into a shoot-off. Well, they had a Robin Hood shoot-off, where it was timed where the animals popped up, and you had to draw and shoot. He put me to shame. I couldn't get my compound with my release. <laughs> I got like 12 to 1 and just destroyed me and put a whooping on me. But it was that in shooting, and I, and I know where you're getting with it, it was so cool because the answer was there every shot. 100 guys in front of me and 100 guys behind me, no one keyed in on how to figure out the problem because everybody was missing. It's just It was as simple as, I watched you walk up to the animal and no one else got it. And then I just sat there and I told my buddy at the end, cause I never, when I shot my buddy, Mike was behind me a couple and he missed 
I didn't tell him because I want to kick his ass. Like, like, we're <laughs> well, if we but could sum it all up, I think this podcast comes down to no matter what you're doing is observation in the field, yeah. observation firsthand. Paid. The animal is going to teach you and the mindset of if you think you're the best, you go out there, the elk, the deer, the turkey, the dove, they're going to teach you. There's something to be learned out there in the, in the, in the field. It's whether you're willing and capable to accept that you right. need to learn more. So Radcast Outdoors is, is not practice makes perfect. It's perfect practice makes perfect. And take a kid hunting or fishing. That's right. And pass on the knowledge. Like, I mean, you just passed on knowledge to me and I appreciate that. You know, it's like, I think every good hunter and angler is really a product of, again, like you said, the time in the field, but also the people that mentor them along and show them things along the way. I mean, we've all learned from some really great people over the years and, you know, I've learned some stuff today, so I really appreciate that. And I did want to throw it out there. You know, how do people find one, your lures and two, get a hold of you if they wanted to, you know, like talk to you or whatever, or get more information. Like how do they, how do they find you and how do they find your product? So the bbz.com, I have a website that I try to post stuff to all the time and there's always contact information. I try to help everybody I can. Um, videos, I'm getting back into it again. I got some cool stuff coming down the pipe with the new cameras and systems, but, uh, the YouTube is, uh, the BBZ TV. So I do all kinds of great fishing, human shadows and ocean fishing and halibut and all kinds of weird stuff. There's there. And then the big thing is, is really paying attention to social media with fish lab tackle. I'm working really hard with them to try to come out with some new product for the fishermen, for everybody from weekend anglers, the youth to the pros at a reasonable price point so we can get people out there fishing again and having fun catching big fish. So, you know, you can follow me along or email me at bill at the bbz.com. I got my websites and my social media and fish lab. I'm a big part of that right now too. So there's videos right now. You could go, I think you already saw it, Patrick, yep. where you saw the, the flutter nymph and the other baits working and stuff. And um, it's a lot of excitement coming down the line. My big thing is, is for high mountain seasoning and the bow spider and the PK lures and stuff, because I'm about promoting the industry and the sponsors. I mean, without them, we can't do what we do. Where do we where do we get info on that for our listeners or my listeners to go and look at your guys' stuff? Because I think that's a big deal, too. Yeah, absolutely. So PKLure.com is PK Lures, and they've got a whole wide range of baits. I mean, they've got stuff for pulling spinner rigs, you know, with worms for walleyes. They've got cranks, um, including a lipless crank that I really like a lot. It's a ridge rattler. They've got jigs. Uh, the spinach jig is one of my favorites. Then high mountain seasonings. You can either Google high mountain seasonings or you can go to himtnjerky.com and you can find them. And then, of course, bowspider.com. You can find the bowspider packing system. You want to buy the full packing system first, and then you can buy extra receivers and different accessories to that as well. But, yeah, the, I really appreciate that, Bill. And, and, again, I'm so grateful that you took the time. I mean, you just spent two hours with us talking fishing and mentorship and understanding what fish behavior is. And, I mean, you just put on a clinic, man. So just thank you again for taking the time. No problem. And I heard – I heard – that the next big elk Dave's going to get that he's going to, he's going to send me some really cool elk strap jerky with high mountain seasoning. <laughs> that, that, that was, that was my, like that. I, I want, I want the famous, I heard you have the famous, you know, elk jerky with the high mountain seasoning. I, I got to get some of that the next one you get. 
No, no doubt. As long as I keep a uh, knock on wood, keep getting out there in the field and getting after it, we're gonna. <laughs> we're season's just around the corner, and uh, we have a YouTube channel as well, Bill, with some pretty cool hunts. My dad and I went on a Alaska hunt. We're going to Alaska again. We filmed the Africa trip, but uh, we have a big, big fall planned. I drew uh, Montana and Wyoming for bull elk. So September, I will be what's chasing your, elk. What's your YouTube channel so we can go check it out? Bow Spider. Okay. Oh, so it's on that. Perfect. That's easy. Yep. So just go to both type in bow spider on YouTube and you'll, you'll find him. That doll sheep hunt is really cool. I mean, Alaska is just an incredible place and he's got a javelina hunt on there. He's got all kinds of stuff. So, um, yeah, definitely check those out. But yeah, again, man, thanks for taking the time. There's, there's very few people that I know of in the industry that take two hours to hang out on a podcast and talk. And so that, this has just been a highlight for me, man. This has been so much fun. Awesome. And like you said, make sure you guys send me the link to the podcast and I'll put a, a, a show up and I'll, I'll promote it on my end because knowledge is golden. And if you get it from the right people that care, like with Radcast outdoors and the BBZ and fish lab, you know, it's going to help somebody who's looking for the help. And that's the biggest thing. A lot of people won't even take the time to do that. So I'm here for you guys, man. Well, when you get up here, I know uh, Patrick might have a secret walleye spot or two <laughs> with some huge walleye. So yeah, we got to figure out how to fish together at some point. I, I, I've, I've had a lot of visions and thoughts of coming to California to catch some of those fish with you one of these days. So we got to figure that out. Don't twist my arm. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks again for listening to the Radcast Outdoors podcast. We hope that you've enjoyed the show. If so, please go to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening to this podcast and subscribe, share, and give us a five-star rating, which really helps other people find the show. You can find all of our shows, recipes, giveaways, videos, and much more at radcastoutdoors.com. While you're there, please help support the show by purchasing a Radcast Outdoors shirt or hat. Please don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram. We also have a Radcast community on Facebook called Radcast Nation, and we'd love for you to join in the conversation there. And of course, please help support our sponsors who make this show possible. Thank you again to PK Lures, bow spider, and high mountain seasonings. Until next time, get out there and enjoy the outdoors.